some good rock and roll coming up for you now. The guys from Kiss have arrived. They snuck in the back door. You spend your whole life doing the first few albums, and then suddenly everybody needs your attention. Erica M. The invention of the VJ. A flashback on the career that made them who they are today. On this episode. The episode of Erica M's reinvention of the VJ that is supposedly about me doesn't feature me at all. Instead, they got my manager to talk about me, but nobody talks to me. What, looking to dig up the dirt, Erica? You want to do a show about me? Come talk to me. Invitation is out there. And now I'll listen to what Kersner has to say. No doubt taking credit for all my accomplishments. Talk about chutzpah. This is Erica M's reinvention of the VJ. Now, here's Erica M. Hi there, I'm Erica M. And thank you so much for tuning into this episode of my reinvention of the VJ podcast. Look, I'm sure we can all agree that there have been some pretty interesting personalities chosen to be much music hosts back in the day. But I dare you to disagree that my guest today is hands down the most unusual VJ ever chosen to host a show on much. Green hair, perpetually smoking a cigar, and if you had smell-o-vision, you'd know he smelled like an old sock. In fact, he was a sock. Ed the Sock. And on today's podcast, I'll be chatting with Stephen Kersner, the brains, the hand, and the voice behind Ed the Sock. We'll chat about how he turned a hand puppet into a foul-mouthed star of the nation's music station. Before we jump into our interview, if this is your first time tuning into my podcast, let me give you just a little bit of background. Reinvention of the VJ podcast is my up close and personal conversations with the eclectic and talented personalities that you may have grown up with on Much Music. Some I worked closely with, others like Stephen and Ed the Sock were after my time. But while our personalities and approaches were very different, <laughs> especially with Stephen, there is one thing that we all do have in common. Each of us played a small part in Canada's most influential pop culture platform. And then we left. At different times, for different reasons, each of us set off on our next adventures. And it's that story of what happens after much, the reinvention, resilience, the luck, some tough times, and perspective. That's what intrigues me. So my chat with Ed, or Stephen, and Ed, <laughs> it's going to be a trip down memory lane for you. And I'm also hoping that through our conversation, you find something interesting, some tidbits or insights into what it takes for you to get what you want in life, how to reinvent or how to deal with tough times, and maybe even redefine what success is. Listen, a lot of us are going through challenging times these days. And we're being forced to reevaluate our priorities and choices in life. So maybe our conversation will inspire you in some small way to look at your life with new perspective, or at least some perspective. Look, if this guy can get a TV series for a sock, imagine what you can do. Am I right? Which brings me to the mastermind behind the sock, Stephen Kersner. Welcome to Reinvention of the VJ. Thanks, Eric. I'm... Glad to be here. It's funny because this is the first time you and I actually have a People figure that all the VJs were like firemen. We all lived above the station <laughs> at some point and we just slid down the pole when it was our time and that we all knew each other. And uh, unfortunately, that's not the case, though. Uh, everything that we did in, I guess, my generation of VJs was standing on the shoulders of giants, which is what uh, you and your generation built and, and left for us to, to build on. So uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Me too. And it's true. I've always wondered, you know, who whose hand is it that holds that Ed the sock? And, you know, I think that's one of the perks of doing a podcast like this, where I get to call up strangers like you <laughs> and, you know, plead with you because I know you're busy and I know that you're picky about who you speak to, um, to join me on the podcast today. And for me, this is this is more of a challenging interview because you and I have never met. So I really have just an outsider's view about, you know, who you are, what you've done. So I want to get to know you. First of all, I want to know, is, is Ed the Sock your alter ego? 
Um, I think Ed the Sock is everybody's alter ego in some ways. Ed, uh, what we traditionally hear is people saying that Ed always says what uh, they're thinking, but they can't say. Um, but over time, uh, there's been some convergence between Ed and me in the sense of as Ed's evolved and I've evolved, um, there has been some greater convergence than there was at the beginning. But uh, no, I wouldn't say that Ed was me saying things I couldn't say otherwise, because you didn't know me when I was younger, but there was very little I didn't say um, ah, on my own. That's so cool. I, that's what I want to know. Okay, listen, there's a book by Barbara Coloroso. She's a, a parenting expert. And she wrote a book called The Bully, The Bullied, or The Bystander. And it was for parents to help them understand the role in sort of the um, in the in the classroom and in the and in the playground and where your child fits in. So she was trying to stop bullying essentially. And I was thinking when I was talking to you, you've got like a really rough mouth, not you, Ed. And I was trying to figure out like who were you when you were young? Were you the bully? Were you oh, bullied, no. <laughs> or were you the you know the righteous bystander? Oh no, I, I've never been a bystander at anything. Um, but being a uh, short, smart Jewish kid in a predominantly non-Jewish school at a less enlightened time, when uh, Jews and, and people who were not wasps were seen basically as guests in society as opposed, you know, even though I was born here, my parents were born here. Um, no, there was quite a bit of bullying attempted on me. Um, what they didn't count on is the fact that when there's two or three guys bigger than you coming at you, you have far greater motivation to fight than they do. Um, and so my optometrist, uh, I think paid for Florida vacations on the number of times my glasses were broken and had to be replaced. But uh, bully, uh, no, I've always stood up against bullies for other people. And uh, that led to fights too. And Ed pretty much does the same thing, especially now stands up for those who can't speak. Um, and there was a, and we'll get to it, but there was a turning point in the character's evolution when that was a deliberate step that was made. So when you were growing up, I'm, I'm still not sure, were you, were you funny? Or were you quiet? Oh, my parents say that I was born talking. Um, now, I don't know if that would have been useful at all, because I don't know if I could get a word in edgewise with my mother around. Um, <laughs> but but uh, no, I have never been quiet. So were you the class clown? Well, clown sort of denotes kind of foolishness. And uh, I, was a, I was a joker. Um, but the kind that the teachers kind of liked most of the time because it was good-natured joking and practical joking. And they saw that it, at least I had good teachers that recognized that what it, uh, what it showed was an active imagination and uh, initiative. And so I was always encouraged in that. And uh, the teachers laughed most of the time at uh, the jokes and things that I made. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I was raised in a family where uh, affection was shown through ribbing each other, um, as opposed to any outward signs of, you know, what you would consider affection. And so uh, that passed on to me. And so people who I liked, even I would rib. Um, and there's a difference between insulting somebody and ribbing them. There's, the, you know, when you insult somebody, you're intending to wound. When you rib somebody, it's, there's an affectionate thing. They're saying that this is who you are, I'm ribbing you about it, but I accept you uh, with these faults or quirks or whatever you have. Um, and that's, that's, who I, that's who I was and, and to some extent still remain so to this day. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta be really honest with you. I, I don't know, I, I think I have a sense of humor, but I don't understand humor or comedy. And so when I listen to you and other comedians, oftentimes I don't get it. I'm like, that wasn't funny. And I was, can you help me understand the type of comedy that you do? Like I think of Don Rickles is to me the closest to what it is that you do. How far off am I? And what is it that 
you do that is funny. <laughs> and I'm not being <laughs> facetious, honestly. No, There's I know no- you're not. Yeah. I know you're not being facetious. Um, and I don't know if I can help you. <laughs> I can certainly try. I mean, uh, Ed started out very much in a Don Rickles mold, uh, sort of vaudeville, um, that old shticky kind of thing, and was very much just about uh, insulting uh, the co-host, insulting guests, um, and so on. And then grew to where the insults were aimed at punching up instead of punching down. What does that mean? And that means that uh, you're taking on the powerful instead of beating up on the weak. Mm. Um, You're making fun of management. You're making fun of big industry. You're making fun of big stars. You're making fun of people who can take it, people on the top who nobody nobody tells them that their their farts stink. and so you're, you're punching up, you're, you're hitting up instead of beating down on people, um, people who, who society has beat down on enough um, and came to take that rather seriously. And they're still kidding around with people, telling, you know, shut up and, you know, interrupting them and you know, finding humor in what they're saying and turning it back around. But uh, it's not intended to, in most cases, it's not, int- certainly in people I'm talking to, it's not intended to wound. You know, Ed is still around doing what he does on social media and has been quite potent in the political arena on social media and uh, restarting uh, videos, and, you know, online, which bo- for a long time bored me. I did them for a few years for a company in the States and they bored me. Um, but starting that back up again and got a radio, an AM radio show that I'm doing for the hell of it. Um, and wait a second, you're doing, or Ed is doing, Ed's doing, yes, (laughs) Ed is doing an AM radio show. Um, shortly I'll be doing one myself as me right afterwards, which will be seriously. Yeah. Um, I started out, I mean, doing television and stuff as myself. Uh, Ed came around later. Um, I started out when I was 14 years old, wearing my bar mitzvah suit, went into the local cable company. Uh, cable access station and said, you know, with my buddies, we have a show idea. And I had like an old briefcase and, uh, you know, they, at that point in time, this was the smallest station in, in Toronto and they took just about anybody. And so they took us and we did our shows. And then I discovered that there was, I loved tell, I mean, I'd always loved television. It was a love affair from, from the beginning. Um, and always loved television. TV Guide was my Bible. Um, always wanted to make television. And so when I went into this place where here were, here were cameras and, and you can just make television, I was in love. And uh, I found that there was a great opening there because everybody else was lazy and they didn't really want to be there. And I did. And so I put in an awful lot of work, uh, a lot of initiative. I did a lot of it for free, uh, especially early on. And then for low paying wages for, for a while. Um, but then when I graduated high school at 18, they put me in charge of the station. So, uh, which was like the greatest, uh, here I am 18 turning 19 and I've controlled the television station and we punched above our weight class uh, with the shows that we put on. But greatest time of my life, even greater than the time at much. Um, though I'm sure that uh, looking backwards puts a bit of a guild on everything. Um, we laughed every single night and they were all, we were all kids and people worked there who were, you know, part-timers working for me were all younger than me. And so, you know, it was a playpen. Um, but it was like Weird Al's UHF before UHF and it was YouTube before YouTube. It was, uh, it was great times. And that's a circuitous way of answering your question. And I didn't tell you what, what Ed does that's funny. What Ed does that's funny, I think, is punctures uh, people's airs about them. It uh, brings the, the powerful down. Because, you know, I, I point out that um, when terrorists attacked in France, they didn't attack the newspapers. They didn't attack the TV news stations. They attacked a satirical publication. Because when you mock the powerful and the scary, you bring them down to size in a way that people can never be quite as scared of them again after you've exposed their Achilles heels, after you've shown that the emperor has no clothes. You rob them of power using comedy. And 
I think that's what Ed does. Ed has the balls to say things that other people can't say because of uh, polite circumstances um, or won't or don't have the platform to say it. And so the humor is in seeing the, the mighty brought low and seeing them mocked. You're super bright. You're super interesting. And what I also now understand is that you're super hardworking. And I'm going to tell you something that is kind of interesting. I think when I was just around your age, I also worked at the local cable company. I also called them up and said, I want to do a show. I also worked for free. And I also worked the hardest and rose up. And I think that as I interview more and more people from Much Music, that is a commonality. Those who work hard are the ones who get what they want. Well, I mean, there's lots of people out there who work like dogs and never get what they want. So I consider myself very fortunate that uh, my hard work paid off. I mean, my, my dad, bless his heart, uh, worked like a dog his whole life. And uh, I can't say his life's bad now, but he's certainly not retired. You know, my parents aren't retired in riches. And so on. And I know there's many people who work day in, day out, who have no opportunity of a limelight, who have no opportunity to have that kind of influence. And, and I don't like to use the word power, but there is a power to it. But not everybody um, wants it. Your dad no, doesn't want that. You wanted it. I wanted it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He was, oh, yeah. It. He wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't work for free as many hours as I do without really having some, some goal in mind. That's for sure. When you were at the cable company, that's when you decided to put your hand into a sock and turn it into a person. Is that true? Well, it started at the cable company. That's true. Um, it was because I was doing political broadcasting as me because I knew everything at 18, um, like, like all of us do when we're 18, 19 years old. Um, so I was doing political broadcasting and being taken somewhat seriously, which is kind of scary. Um, I was recruited by the local, uh, back then I was a conservative. Boy, if I come a long way. Um, but I was recruited by the local conservative party to run as a candidate. So I was... I had plans on staying in political broadcasting, um, not, not aware of the fact that I was very young and everyone recognized I was young. Um, so a friend of mine was doing a show, a comedy show that I used to do when I started out, but he was brilliant, like just off the wall brilliant, but he didn't understand formatting. He didn't understand when an interview should come to an end and because it was cable, there weren't commercial breaks. So he didn't understand when to bring a commercial, when to bring an interview to an end. He didn't understand when to let a piece of material, you know, a, a shtick go. And so we needed somebody to be a co-host for him, who could coach him along and sort of bring some discipline and some some structure to what was going on there. And I wasn't going to be a co-host on a comedy show when I was doing serious political things. Of course not. And he came in sporadically. He didn't have a regular time that he came in. So it needed to be somebody who was there all the time because otherwise people couldn't come at the drop of a hat. The only person who was there all the time was me. Um, and so I, my friend and I had been lampooning a friend's father and stepfather. Um, they were both different kinds of characters, but we had voices for them and little recitations, you know, they were basically, we turned them into characters. And so I went to the filing cabinet, which held the children's, uh, the kids shows stuff, all the arts and crafts supplies and so on. And uh, there was, I don't know why there was a sock in there. There was just one sock um, and took that, clipped some of the uh, fun fur off of the fake park set for the puppet show, um, took two glue stick tops from YooHoo Sticks and Letraset O's for eyes, and had a cigar there. Again, I don't recall why. Um, put that all together, and then went out and did the co-hosting on the show. I mean, Ed initially was very different from the way he became and the way he eventually evolved, but the original Ed, most people never saw. Uh, the original Ed was a brown puppet, a brown sock, which I changed rather quickly because I didn't want anyone to take any racial implications from it. Um, but... Ed initially was just kind of zany and you didn't know where he was coming from. He wasn't really insulting. He was just sort of off the wall and it's the character just sort of grew and evolved. And I did it as a, it was something that was amusing to me. I did it because it was funny. 
and people found it funny. And then people told me not to do it anymore. They said, you're going to ruin your political aspirations if you keep doing this puppet. And I said, I, I don't care. I'm having fun with it. Uh, and most people didn't know it was me. So, um, but then it just, it kept growing and I recognized there was potential there and just kept building it. You recognize uh, there was potential in a sock. uh, Based on the responses of people to the sock and just how much entertainment their value there was in me doing it and the people around me watching it happen. I recognized that there was, you know, I saw that there was some potential there. I'm, you know, as a student of television, uh, I'm aware of all the offbeat characters and, uh, you know, human and non-human that managed to build up an audience. And this is at a time when Ren and Stimpy was, was, was growing big. Um, and so I recognized that there was an audience for bizarre, you know, as they call them, high concept uh, ideas. And I kept pushing it. I, man, I, I sent tapes of uh, the show as they kept refining. I sent tapes to every TV station I could think of. I would go to the library Go, you talk about working hard, go to the library, find the yellow pages for various cities, look up the various TV stations. There was, there was no internet. So I would just send it to the program director. And, you know, sometimes I got, I got rejections. Most of the time I got ignored. I even sent a VHS tape to Moses. And Moses sent back to me my own letter and just scrawled in the corner. He wrote, sorry, not our format. And six months later, he came to me. Um, so I have that letter somewhere. I saved it. And when I moved, I mis- mislaid it, but I kept it as an example of sometimes in life, it's all about timing. That's awesome. What <laughs> a great story. Oh, I love it. Um, as a sock or, you know, as Ed, the sock, um, you've been able to get away with saying really outrageous things. When did you realize that you, like an animated show, has license to shock? I think right off the bat, I didn't consciously, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't something I was consciously aware of. I wasn't cognizant of the fact that there's a license here. Uh, I realized that uh, going through season one on City TV, that's when I realized the, the, the strength of the license of a non-human character. Um, because non-human care, see, when a, when a human being criticizes something, there's an innate reaction amongst us to say, well, who the hell are you to criticize? You know, you know, who are you to hold yourself above and criticize? Non-human characters, they don't, there's not that innate reaction. There's not that gut reaction to it. Um, and people are, and non-human characters are observers. You know, cartoons, they're observers. Um, they're not they're not part and parcel of everybody else. They stand apart. And when you stand apart as an observer, you're, a, you're allowed to make comments that you're not allowed to make when you're just a regular human being. Some human beings absolutely can and, and great comics have. I mean, George Carlin, people like that, Richard Pryor um, were human and still managed to, to make great commentaries on, on life and to, to change people's thoughts or to make people think. Uh, but, you know, you look at something like South Park, which on its surface, if you just look on the surface, it's a bunch of foul-mouthed kids. But if you look below the surface, same with Beavis and Butthead, it works as just a dumb, couple of dumb kids look beneath the surface and it's saying more. Old Warner Brothers cartoons, Bugs Bunny and so on. It worked when you were a kid. It was just funny on one level. You get older and you see the satire. You see that the best comedy works on multiple levels so that as you grow up, you discover more things that were there than you knew were there at the time. So I discovered in season one that I just felt that there was a license there. And I, maybe it's a factor of I was, I was growing up, certainly wasn't grown up. Um, I was in my twenties, but, uh, and certainly you know, I've had, I'd had a tremendous run of success. So there was a degree of arrogance there. But when you're in your 20s, I think if you don't have arrogance when you're in your 20s, uh, I don't know what happens to you in your 30s. You, you got to, uh, I did the things I did in my 20s because I would never have done them in my 30s or certainly or my 40s. Um, but I discovered that there was a license and I felt that there was a responsibility to that license 
that came with it. It was, I was tired of doing, of having Ed just do the same shtick, the same insult shtick, the same vaudeville shtick, the same. I, I just felt that, because at the time, Married with Children had been popular. And it started out by being a real send-up. In, its intention was a send-up of the Cosby Show and all those family-friendly sitcoms. But it shocked. And the direction they went was they just kept shocking. They, eventually, there wasn't any story in the sitcom anymore. It was just setups for shock. And they had to keep upping the shock value because people became numb at a certain level because they were used to it. And I looked at that and said, well, we've got the opportunity to continue to do that, to continue to just up the shock value, or the, we have the opportunity to say something about it, about things. And so I'll never forget the first episode of season two on City TV when uh, we did some culturally and politically relevant content. And boy, the, my partner at the time uh, wasn't happy with it. City TV wasn't happy with it. They wanted us to go back to the silly stuff. And I said, no, because I was young and arrogant. <laughs> um, and uh, continued to just push Ed and, that, and eventually they came on board. And that happened with Much Music too. When Ed started at Much Music uh, was with a really terrible show called Smasher Trash, which was Moses's idea based on an old radio show that he'd been a fan of called Is It a Hit or Is It a Miss? So the idea was to take mu new music videos and have a panel discuss the merits or lack thereof of music videos. And it was a bad idea. <laughs> it was, it was, it's like examining the, the, the sugar content of bubble gum. It was, we brought people in and we were elevating uh, these music videos to a level that they didn't, they didn't bear the scrutiny of. And so it was ponderous and hard to make it funny. And we kept, I had a co-host, Steve Anthony, who was great, was my first co-host. And he was very supportive, very, very welcoming. Uh, can't thank that guy enough. Um, we kept switching different VJs as hosts, but nothing could save that format. Um, and then Ed sort of went freelance for a while, just did, did VJ stuff um, and was slowly growing up. I remember when Denise Donlin came in with her mandate for making much music relevant. And I was one of the naysayers who said, this is absurd. How do you make something that's bubblegum relevant? And I thought she was crazy. Um, I've subsequently apologized to her many times because she was 100% right. And she saw in Ed the ability to make commentary and to, it, it, to aid her goal of making comments and you know, making music videos relevant, attaching some relevance to them, attaching some relevance to people's lives uh, outside of just simply watching them as a consumer. And uh, Ed grew in that direction over time and became kind of the station's conscience. I'm going to go back to the beginning. Go back. I want to understand. Okay. You've got the sock. Yes. Your hand is in the sock. He looks That's like right. Ed. It's your yes. voice. Where are you situated in the shot? Are, is your arm, and I'm asking you this just for comfort level, is your arm sticking up always? Like, it must be, I mean, seriously, is it not physically hard? Well, I'm laughing just that you're, you're asking about comfort level. There's never been comfort. It has never been comfortable. It has always hurt. People assume that the voice hurts. The voice doesn't hurt. Uh, not at all. Initially, the voice hurt a lot because before I learned how to use my diaphragm and breathing and so on, pushing that voice up, I used to get terrible headaches, terrible pressure headaches. I have to lie down afterwards. But eventually you learn to how to breathe and so on. It's the physically, it was very uncomfortable. Um, when we did the talk show format uh, on City, before we changed formats, um, I, I was behind a couch and sort of sitting cross-legged and my legs would go to sleep, my shoulder would hurt like hell. Um, but you get it, you're a performer, you understand, you get into a zone, right? Where you're not feeling, you're really not feeling, the pain has to be pretty intense for it to affect your performance. You go someplace else. Um, and then when, when you come out of that place, the aggregate of everything you would have been feeling catches up to you and you wind up feeling worse. But uh, I remember at the time, Marcy Martin suggested that because she'd seen how the Muppets did it. 
that they elevated everything. And she said, maybe we should elevate everything. And it, we couldn't, I mean, the lighting grid was too low. Right. We would have had our heads in the lights. <laughs> That's right. You know, so it, it was- Because it wasn't a normal I, studio, really, yeah. No, yeah. it was never, it wasn't right. built to be a studio, it was retrofitted. Right. Um, and so there was no way to actually do it. And, and the, the point I made was, I go from crossing my legs with my arm up to standing with my arm up. There's no comfort here. No, that's what I thought. No, it's very uncomfortable. Um, it became more comfortable with much music as they learned that uh, instead of hiding me, me behind things, you know, it was like Lucy when she was pregnant in I Love Lucy, where they kept hiding her behind plants. Um, they, I had to hide behind TVs and so on, and that was uncomfortable. They, I forget which camera person originally uh, realized it, but it's just have Ed out everywhere and just frame me out of the shot. Duh. And yeah, <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, and I think that actually was a real quantum leap in Ed seeming like he's alive. Yes. Because now Ed's not landlocked behind things. Ed's moving around and interacting with people and moving rather fluidly around. And that takes away the, oh, there's gotta be somebody hiding behind that. It, 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 I think it was, there was a mindset change in, you know, in viewership because now Ed's out in the world. Ed's not trapped behind things. And so that sense of being just a puppet, I think went away. But, uh, you know, to answer your question, it's never been comfortable. I also think about how quick-witted he is because I know that at much it wasn't scripted I know that for a fact. <laughs> you know that for a fact, yeah. So I need eye contact. You and I are doing this interview on Zoom. I'm looking you in the eye so we can yeah. communicate. It's Ed that's looking the camera in the eye, and it's Ed that would be communicating with the people around them. How did you do that? Because you had to think on your feet without having that that. Uh, visual connection with the people you're communicating with? Well, yes. I think that it was more difficult for the guests mm. than it was for me because you're naturally, you naturally look for not just eyes, but you move toward you, your eyes move towards the sound. So you look towards the person who's speaking. Right. And so the key there was always holding Ed in front of me so that their eye line was generally in the, like even if they looked at me, the eye line was in the general direction of Ed. And I would constantly be, you know, moving my head like, look, look at the, not, <laughs> not me. Um, some people got it. Like the bigger, the bigger the star, the more they understood and the more, and it's, uh, it's I mean, Christina Aguilera was the most, the standout in that uh, I did interviews with her several times she insisted every time she came to Toronto, if much wanted to interview her, it had to be Ed. Um, and uh, she uh, would treat me as Ed's person. Very courteous, polite, sweet. But when Ed would pop up, all of a sudden, there was her peer. And she said, oh, Ed, and she'd hug him. And, and she would just light up. She changed, like she went into performer mode. And then when Ed went down, I was again, Ed's person. Again, she was very nice, um, but the relationship was very different. It wasn't as if I was her peer. Ed was her peer. Um, but it was difficult for some people to, to look at the puppet. I think maybe some of them maybe felt silly looking at the puppet. Yeah, I think. Only, yeah. <laughs> um, but as Ed gained in stature, more and more people realized Ed was far more interesting than I am. No. I think so. <laughs> you see, you are Ed. I'm just going to remind you that everything that came out of Ed's mouth came from your head. That's what I think is so fascinating. Well, it came from a channel from somewhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, right. it, it was like switching a channel. Um, you know, there were times when I might have been as aggressive as Ed. What would Ed say to me right now? Oh, I have no idea. Can you call it? Can you call on him and and call upon the Ed in your stream of consciousness to? I actually can't. I actually can't without the puppet on. I, I unless I'm doing radio, um, which I will do without the puppet. 
I would have to, I, I don't do, I don't go on camera doing the voice because I don't want to shatter people's illusions. You saw on Twitter that one person who said, wait, you mean Ed's not really a talking sock? Um, the number of people who, I did a live tour uh, two, a year and a half ago, uh, my wife was a co-host and we, uh, Ed, you know, Ed did the live tour and we tried to hide, I tried to hide backstage before the show, but people afterwards paid for a meet and greet and they came and they're like, oh, I wish I hadn't met you. I, <laughs> you know, I think of Ed as being real and uh, I don't want to take that away from people. Years ago, I watched a 60 minute special um, where they did behind the scenes on the Simpsons and they went into the sound booths with the people doing the voices. And I was never able to look at those characters again, the same way without seeing in my mind's eye, the people doing the voices and people have invested a lot of them. You know, there's an emotional connection people have with Ed. Uh, there's, there's emotional equity over the years and I don't want to take that away from them. Um, and so what would Ed say to you right now? I have no idea. I would have to, it would have to be a setup from the beginning that Ed was going to interview you. And <laughs> then the mindset goes into that direction. Um, but so I wish I could, I would, could for you, but I can't. You said something about the uh, much environment. It's a quote that I took from Christopher Ward's book, Is This Live? And you said, if Mad Max had been in a set in a studio, it would be at much music. Did I say that? <laughs> of course you said that. Okay. Um, Actually, well, Ed said that. Oh, Ed said that. <laughs> oh, well, I spoke to Christopher for about 45 minutes, so I don't remember everything that I said. Um, but, I mean, the much music environment was the Wild West. It was, everybody was trying to get away with something. Um, it wasn't post-apocalyptic, but if you were in traditional Canadian media, it was post-apocalyptic. It scared the hell out of you. Uh, these bunch of kids can do this in this this room and cameras are on, aren't on tripods and they don't have teleprompters telling them what to say. They have to make it up as they go and try to seem intelligent and literate and aware and informed. It, I mean, there are a lot of people who that was a frightening proposition. I remember uh, who was, it was David Bowie, I believe, who came into much music to do an interview and looked around and said, this is a bunch of children. And he said it, with wonderment, not with insult, but he wasn't wrong because we weren't technically children. We were adults living our young adults still in touch with our inner, inner child. There was so much pranking that went on with each other. It was like a clubhouse in a sense. And there were very few, when I was there, very few personality conflicts. Um, certainly amongst the VJs, there were none. Uh, we were all colleagues, all friends, remain in touch to this day. I have not a bad thing to say about any one of them. Uh, they were all professionals and, and uh, uh, artists and uh, good friends. And there was very little conflict uh, to, or to none between VJs and the, the, the production team, even though sometimes we asked them to do some really out there things. Sometimes they were the ones who had the out there ideas. It was really a synergy but when um, I was there, talent. there was, yes. there was, there were explosions because you had like 30 passionate, creative people who were under pressure to perform every day. And I don't mean just the on-air people. I mean, the camera sure. people. And, and so every once in a while, there'd be these boom explosions in one part of the room where there was conflict, but that was part of the creative process back then. I'm curious about your your interview process. I speak to a lot of the different hosts about their approach to interviews. I imagine that yours might be slightly different than the average VJ or personalities approach to interviews. So what what was your approach? Well, I mean, they were in a tiny bit of a straitjacket in a sense because there was certain information that they had to get out. There was a certain formality of information that they had to get out. There was a certain amount of promotion that the record company expected. So they were, they had a narrow, more, much more narrow parameter as to what they could do. Um, if their parameter was here, my uh, parameter started at the, you know, where theirs ended. Um, I, I worked from the outside. 
and they worked on the inside. And so I would look for things that uh, they hadn't been asked before or things they'd been asked and gave an answer and that nobody had followed up on it. It was something, it was like a dangling participle. There was something there that needed to be followed up on. Um, and, so you, would you do research? Oh yeah. I mean, and it was tougher in the earlier days because there was no internet. So, <laughs> right. you know, you'd have to go and buy all these magazines. Across the street we, at the bookstore? Across the street at the bookstore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. pages. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you had, and there was a real, I mean, people can't, perhaps younger people can't understand now how limited your source of, sources of information were in those days. And you know, I managed, I, I was there during the internet. So I eventually got to be able to use that. I give credit to, to you and your generation of VJs because you didn't have that. And you, you had to rely on, you know, what's in here to try to look at what the, the PR stuff that you were given and try to find angles and different ways in. And I was trying to find angles and different ways in. And there was never any pressure on me to make Ed uh, a promo guy. So the interview was the promo for these people, pushing their album, pushing their video, that was never there. So I didn't, so it opened, it both opened up doors because I could, you know, I remember once with Wyclef Jean reading that he started by playing the accordion. So I brought him a really tiny toy accordion and asked him to play the accordion. And he got, he tried, then he got really like ang fake angry so why do you give me this crappy little accordion for, you know, Ed's rousing him saying, you never played the accordion. If you can't play a toy accordion, you can't play a real one. And just that kind of, but he dropped the, the promo face. Right. And that's what they did with Ed was they dropped the promo face. Cause I wasn't asking them the same questions as everybody else. All of a sudden they had to think they had to answer questions. They were not prepared for, and they weren't rehearsed and they'd laugh. And the great equalizer is people laughing. I remember when Lenny Kravitz was get, being a real pain in the ass for one MMVA because he didn't get the brand of chocolate chip cookies that were in his rider. And he was refusing to rehearse. He was being a real pain in the ass. And for some reason he agreed to an interview with Ed. And during that interview, he kept trying not to laugh. And then eventually he just paused, took a breath and broke out laughing. And after that, he was completely different with everybody because it shattered that whole facade of him being this tortured artist, this being this remote figure, because once you shared laughter with people, it's a great equalizer. It, 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 there's a great commonality in laughter. And uh, a lot of celebrities uh, felt that way. They, they would ask to be interviewed by Ed again because they got to be themselves. And the, the, you know, the themselves that they were, were good people. Were, were, you know, you were kind people. of like the Miss Piggy of much music. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> In a sense. Yeah. I mean, people, people wanted to be interviewed by Miss Piggy and by the Muppets um, because it was a very different experience mm -hmm. and it was an experience. On, I mean, people can't possibly think about the junkets these celebrities were on that every day they're in a different city and they start morning radio at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning and all day long they're asked the same questions. Um, the relief of being able to just be themselves and not have to just regurgitate, you know, and go into autopilot, it's a great relief for them. And uh, it, I, I took care to never really, with, with a couple of exceptions, never had Ed actually insulting the people or their work. It was more ribbing them. It was more taking, taking the piss out of them, uh, bringing them down to size and sometimes criticizing their work, but clearly in a way that's not your vocals were lacking or, you know, none of that technical stuff. It was all just nonsense. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, you know, the couple of exceptions, people are saying, who's the exceptions now? Uh, Vanilla Ice and Anthony Kiedis from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, Vanilla Ice was a complete asshole. Um, he, his career had, was not in its good, a good place. We flew to Florida to interview him and he was going on and on about how horrible his life was. And it, I, I couldn't take it anymore. Um, and then he started taking shots at Ed and I had a rule. You got three shots. And then <laughs> if they were three, not funny shots, but three actual shots, you got three. 
And then out came the big artillery. Um, and I shut him down real quickly. I think he was going on about how bad his life was. It was you know, I had Ed say, oh, is Sally Struthers going to do a commercial for you? And he got really pissed off. And uh, we left. And as we're leaving, going to the car, his manager comes to us and says, hey, Ice doesn't want to do the interview. I'm like, what? Ice just did the interview. Yeah. And he said, I, I, I said why? Ice doesn't want to do the interview. I'm like, I don't understand. I said, I don't understand. Ice doesn't want to do the interview. And I said, do you mean he doesn't want us to use it? Yeah, he doesn't want to do the interview. And I said, well, you know what? He came across as an asshole, but that was his choice. And he could have stopped the interview when we got here. He could have stopped it midway. He could have said something right when we ended. When we leave a building, the interview is there. And the guy shook his head and walked away. We get in the car, his cell phone rings. It's the record company thanking us profusely for doing the interview with Vanilla Ice. Well, because no but one else would touch him. No one, no one else wanted to talk to him. And yeah. Anthony Kiedis just didn't feel, I think he felt that it was beneath him to talk to a sock puppet. And so he was giving really grunty answers and he was being sullen and a real asshole. You know, and Ed said to him, you just want to punch me right now, don't you? And there was a pause that was just a little bit too long before he said no. And just the vibe you could, the, the, the energy which you feel, as you know, sometimes the energy you feel doing an interview, it doesn't always translate on camera. People watching it don't, aren't aware that there was things going on there. And uh, yeah, he was, and then he walked off, like sort of stalked off like an asshole. I had a bad experience with him too. Oh, did you? When people say, what was your least favorite interview? I always say my Red Hot Chili Pepper interview. And now when my kids listen to them, I go, turn it off. They're not nice. <laughs> they, they, I have that with the Beastie Boys. I thought they were cool rock and roll guys and they were real divas. Um, oh, me. don't tell my and, kids uh, that. They'll be so disappointed. They're so into the Beastie don't, Boys. Don't tell we them. We won't tell them. Don't, listen, you can divorce the people from their music. Their music, I can still listen to their music, but at the same time, I'm remembering um, what, what divas they were. Um, but one of them's passed away now, so I shouldn't speak ill of him. But my experiences with them at that time, because people change. Mm. Uh, my experience with them at the time was not a, not a great experience, but their music stands the test of time. So don't tell your kids. Why did you end up leaving much music? <laughs> well, um, you want the short answer or the longer answer? Whatever you want to give me. The short answer is it was becoming less and less much music. Um, there was attempts at greater control over what people said by people who had not the ability to, or the talent to, to make those demands. Um, I, uh, management changed. Denise Donlin left. And uh, the person who was put in charge, not the VP, not my friend Dave Kynes, but the person who uh, was put in charge of programming, um, uh, not the kind of person who worked well with others. Um, somebody who every time you walked into her office, she had her TV with the multiple screens on MTV channels saying, why can't we do that? not aware of the specialness of what Much Music did. That The thing about Much Music was it wasn't that. You know, it was something different. Also, why can't we do it? We don't have the resources. <laughs> we don't have the people. We don't have the money. Um, and uh, she went away on maternity leave. And we did, uh, we, uh, by we, I mean my wife and I, we worked together, um, produced a, a new Ed show called Smart Ass, The Ed, The Sock Report. And part of it was looking at the correlation between Bono's charity uh, activities and a new album coming out um, or something, some uh, device or uh, some product of U2 coming out and showing how he moved. He talks about governments giving tax dollars, but he moved his stuff uh, out of Ireland because of the tax laws. And so just pointing out the hypocrisies. And we were very clear all the way through what we were doing because I knew this was going to be controversial. And so we told the person who was in charge at the time and he, I had a whole email trail of here's what we're doing. Here's what we're doing. Well, the program person came back from maternity leave the same time that that show aired and she got freaked out and said, you know, Bono will never come back in here now. And Bono was never coming back anyways because he only came in for Strombo and Strombo had left for CBC. But, uh, and then the person who I had been dealing with 
claimed that I, uh, that my wife and I snuck it in, that we cheated and that we didn't tell him what we were doing. And we snuck the content in without telling him. And I had tons of emails showing that we laid it out in detail, probably the most detail ever, because I never told them what I was going to do. They never asked. and I never told them. Um, Until this, this time. Until this time, I told them in right. advance what I was going to be doing, because I knew that it was a hot button. And uh, we had a meeting where I was putting, I was, he was kept claiming that, it was, that we were underhanded and we snuck it by him. And I kept putting the emails, I put it right under his face and he'd look over here and I put the emails here and he'd look over there and the person in charge refused to sanction him for anything. Instead said that we had to have everything we did approved and every step of the way that we were sh shooting and editing had to have it approved. And I said, no, we didn't break any rules. If you want to pretend it never happened, that he didn't, you know, then let's pretend this never happened and let's just move on. Well, that soured me on the place tremendously that, that uh, they wanted to put sanctions on us and continue to treat us as if we were underhanded as opposed to being honest about the fact Team that- Team players, gone. right. Yeah, and uh, they insulted my wife uh, more times than I was able to countenance. Um, they were very insulting people in general, uh, very dishonest. And so you when, didn't leave on good terms. No, I, well, quite frankly, I left because the person who was supposed to be, and this is not something that's publicly been revealed, but the person who I was, ha who I had the most trouble with the person, the program person, I had made complaints above everybody else's head about this person. And so had other people. And this person was what we were told was they were looking to replace this person. So leave much music and then come back when she's gone. And so I left much music, stayed with my city TV show. Um, and then the company, the owner of the company or the, the, the patriarch passed away. His kids decided to sell the company. When you sell a company, you don't replace executives because it looks bad on the, you know, to the market that you're, you know, you want to make it seem like you have the best people already in, in place. So she got to keep her job. So I never went back. Um, and I was the only VJ never to get a goodbye. I was the only VJ never to have it acknowledged that Ed left. And when I left, they were still running four hour marathons of the Fromage show that Liana and I did. Um, so like from four years back, three years back and getting higher ratings than any of the new stuff that they put on. So Ed was still their highest draw, um, which is why they, I guess they didn't, they didn't do anything. They, they didn't mention he's gone. They didn't want to say goodbye to you formally because then people knew you weren't there. I wasn't there anymore. Yeah. It was like a year and a bit before they stopped playing my stuff. And uh, I almost went back years later. Um, they asked me to come back when Much Music was foundering and these people had not, were no longer in those positions. Um, and I almost went back and then Much Music changed its format from music to comedy. And for some reason, they thought that Ed wouldn't fit with comedy. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, bizarre. But no, I did not leave on good terms. Um, and that's why there was never a goodbye. That's why there was never any mention. There was never a press release. Um, I stayed within the Chum family. So, uh, you know, I just continued along. And I think that there was an understanding that I'd come back uh, and then just didn't. I've been working in the music business or the entertainment business, the now the internet business for an awfully long time. And there is one lesson that I learned is that you can never burn a bridge. You, Stephen, have managed to burn a few big ones. How do you do that? Like, do you just, how do you piss people off so well? Well, that was in my earlier days. <laughs> I think I, I tend not to piss people off these days because I found that uh, you talk about evolution. I found it's not worth it. Um, now, I had to stand my ground a lot back in the day because there was lots of people telling me how to change Ed and what I should do. And they weren't ideas that I thought suited uh, it particularly. And so uh, I just, and also I found it such a big headache. Uh, when you, you know, when you butt heads with people, you're actually butting heads with people. It's just not <laughs> worth it. I actually find that uh, nowadays for when it comes to conflict, I try to find a side door as opposed to going head to head. I try to find um, a resolution that lets everybody keep their dignity 
um, and a resolution that keeps in mind the other person's needs going, you know, into this as well as my own and try to find something that's livable for both people. Um, so, you know, when we're young, we do tend to burn bridges, but if I hadn't have stood my ground, then Ed wouldn't still be something that people respect fondly. Um, you know, there was a time Moses wanted Ed to wear a dress every second uh, appearance on camera. And yeah, that was my response too. And I said, no, you know, I said no to Moses. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, in the record company world, sure, burned bridges because I made fun of their artists, but at the same time, talked about their artists and there's no such thing as bad press. Certainly when you're being insulted by somebody who insults everybody um, or who, if your work is being insulted by somebody who insults everybody's work, then it's not like you're being singled out by, you know, it, it, you're getting the same treatment as everybody else. But uh, yeah, there's, uh, there, I've worked with people in the TV business uh, at much and since much who are far worse than anything I ever was like. Far, far worse. Demeaning to people, um, you know, insulting, uh, abusive, and uh, they continue to prosper. They continue to fall upwards. It kind of, I shake my head at it. But uh, yeah, it, it, certainly it depends on what bridges you burn and how you burn them, I guess, or who you burn them with. <laughs> I can't tell you. How has being on much music affected future opportunities for you? Is it, has it been helpful or has it been a pain in, bu in the butt? Well, I, I mean, I'm thankful for the for the time on Much Music, but no, it's been it's it's hampered ever since then. I probably should have left Much Music before Much Music, uh, you know, stopped being what it was. I probably should have done what George and Rick did and engineered an exit to another platform at the time, um, but uh, I didn't. And then after I quit Much and and Much was bought out by by CTV, um, I would go play. People would ask for for meetings. And then I'd go meet with them and then they'd say, yeah, but you know what? Ed the Sock is so much a much music brand and a chum brand that people will see you, see Ed and think of another channel and change the channel, which is just not how people, people work. It's not, that, that isn't TV viewing habits. In the States, somebody's on one network. The other networks are glad to get them, even if their show ended and, you know, it, it, it ended on lower ratings. There's still someone that's recognizable. And they recognize that there's an emotional equity between the audience and the, and the performer, sometimes even between the show producer and the, and the audience. And so they recognize there's value there in Canada, because in the States, making television is a business in Canada, it's the cost of doing business. Um, the motivations aren't the same. And so I would go places and they'd say, one place said, your brand is too big for us. How do you, in television, which is a popularity contest, how can you have too powerful a brand? It, it, it doesn't make any sense. The comedy network years ago under different management said, you were on much music, so don't know how to rebrand Ed for comedy. It's like, all Ed ever did was comedy. What are you even talking about? Like it was, it, it, it's, it's a stereotyping of a sort. They thought Ed could only exist to talk about music videos, even though Ed did much more than that. Um, so it was a hindrance. Uh, you know, in the early years. Now I'm just waiting for the people who grew up watching it to get, get into positions of uh, influence in TV and say, hey, you know what I'd like to have back? So waiting on that to happen. So this show is partly about reinvention. And I wonder, because you're, you and Ed are still inextricably linked, <laughs> do you believe that you have reinvented from back in the day when you were, for example, at the cable company? Uh, me, myself, personally? Well, you, you are connected to Ed. So, yes, I think but the question Ed's is... Ed's had an evolution that's different than mine, I guess. I want to hear about you. Okay, that's what I wanted to ascertain. Um, I've been evolving for years, um, politically, socially. Um, so I think I reinvent myself it's a constant process whereby I'll look back a couple of years ago at something I said or something I thought and think, what was I thinking back then? Um, I am, I, I have stepped forward in the, you know, I started a podcast network called the fun network, 
it was originally called Fun the FU Network, but that's too cheeky for Canada. So uh, it's called the Fun Network. Our podcasts have done remarkably well. They're all audio podcasts. And I host uh, one of those as me. I used to host two, but I put one of them aside. Um, I'm going to be doing a radio show as me, uh, coming forward as sort of the liberal voice of this, this small radio station that already has a couple of loud conservative voices. Um, I have reinvented in the sense that I have refocused myself on the internet and learning the ins and outs of the internet as, as you have, um, because television's, you know, for me, television's gone away. Um, it's, there's no television. You can never say never. I mean, look at all the reboots that are happening in the U S and so on. There's, there's things you'd never would have thought are coming back that are coming back. Um, but right now there is no TV for Ed, the television, the complexion of the television market in Canada doesn't allow for it. Um, and so I've had to reposition for the internet, which is its own challenge because when you're with a TV station, they're out there getting the advertising there, you know, you're getting a check for doing it. Whereas with the internet, you got to be out there chasing these people down, chasing down the money. And it's Tell exhausting. me about it. Yeah, <laughs> it is yeah. exhausting. Yeah. It's exhausting. And as creative people, uh, you know, salespeople, there is something in them that I'm so impressed with them. They're able to take no and just move on. No big deal. But when you're selling yourself and your value to somebody and they say, no, it's not just a, it's not just a business. No, it, it, there's a sting to it. And no matter how many times you tell yourself it's not personal, it's, this simply doesn't suit their business interests at the time or what there's still that sting of what you don't think I'm worth it. You, you know, you don't see any value in what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, so there's, there's that, and you have to reinvent yourself in the sense, I've had to reinvent myself in the sense of building a thicker skin towards that. Um, and, you know, you're only ever partially successful. Uh, you know, I would get, it goes back to, I would get tons of emails uh, that were positive about it, tons. And then you get one that was critical and critical in a way that you could see that they weren't just being assholes that there may have, they may have had a point to what they were saying, or they so completely missed what the point of what you were doing. Um, and you think, how did I miss this person? And, you know, that sticks in your head. The other stuff, it's like horoscopes for me. If I read a horoscope occasionally, if it says something good's going to happen, I don't believe it. If it says something bad's going to happen, I worry, you know? So it's the same thing. You see all those good comments, they sort of blend into the background, but it's the one bad one that gets you. So, you know, having to reinvent myself as a salesperson all of a sudden um, and creating sales. I always created sales materials and I always helped sell, but I didn't go looking. I wasn't the person going out looking for the leads. Yeah, it's a whole different skill set. I have one last question for you. Yes. We are, they say, psychologists say, happiest when we have purpose in life. What's your purpose? My purpose is to stand up for little people, to speak truth to power, um, and to use the influence and the trust that Ed the Sock has earned in a responsible way to speak up for people who don't have a platform. And on that note, thank you so much, Steve. It was fantastic getting to know you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time and also for speaking your truth. It takes bravery. And also you have the luxury of sort of being able to have a sock say things for you, but it all comes from your heart. Um, For my awesome listener, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please remember to rate the show, hopefully with five stars, Uh, review it five And subscribe because there are so many cool interviews that we are posting. People like Steve, Stephen, who have done such interesting things on Much Music and continue to do cool things. And remember, the show is all about you. And I want to prove it to you. I'm going to play this comment. This is from Jordan in Vancouver, who called in on my special phone line and left this comment. 
Hi, Erica. This is Jordan. I'm calling you from Vancouver. Uh, I actually uh, grew up in Ontario, and uh, much was really a part of my teenage years growing up in the late 90s and early 2000s. I did once attend Much On Demand and got to meet uh, Rick Campanelli and George Strombolopoulos and was actually surprised at how short they were <laughs> and got a picture with them, but I never got a copy of that picture. It's somewhere on the East Coast, I think. But my question is actually if you ever interview Namagini, uh, because I follow her on Twitter and she's just absolutely wonderful and she's very gracious and uh, responsive to comments. Um, I know that she has uh, a background in Africa. I, I forget which country, I'm sorry, but um, she lived through a civil war and I'm wondering how living through a situation like that and having to be a refugee in Canada affected her professional life. Are there things in her past that she... Uh, is still using in her present life. Thank you so much. Keep up the work. I've listened to your three episodes so far, and they're fantastic. Thank you so much. Take care. Hey, Jordan. Thank you so much. That was an awesome comment about our height. Well, not my height, but uh, George's and um, the temps' height. You're right. It's hard to tell one's stature when you take up a whole frame on TV. But while they may be short in stature, they are both tall in talent. I hope you check out my interview with both of them right here on Reinvention of the VJ. As for Nam, yes, we interviewed her. I interviewed her as well. And we did definitely go back to uh, her time in Africa. And she talks a lot about how she came to Canada and how the experience of being a refugee uh, stays with her even today and informs pretty much every decision that she makes in life. So I hope you check out Nam Kiwanuka's uh, episode on reinvention of the VJ. If you would like to phone in, I would love to hear from you. The phone number is 833-972-7272. You can call in, uh, talk about this show, talk about a different episode that you may have listened to, perhaps reminiscent, uh, reminisce about your, uh, your time watching much music or if there's a specific much person that you have a comment or a question for and um, feedback on what you'd like me to do for future episodes of reinvention of the VJ. And if you're not a phone person, you can also share your feedback on social media. You can track me down on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, just look for Erica M and you'll find me. Thank you again, Stephen Kersner, for joining me and uh, your friend, Ed the Sock, who was in the drawer beside you. And <laughs> I will see all of you next week with another episode of Reinvention of the VJ. Here's to living a life filled with music, meaning, and many reinventions. Thanks for listening. Follow Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ podcast. Subscribe and follow more episodes. Click to reinventionofthevj.com. Podcast produced in collaboration with Steve Anthony Productions. Editing and coordination of Flalo Communications, Inc. Copyright 2020. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.